Hey everybody, welcome to the 59th episode of our World News Podcast. This is going from September 10th to the 16th. This podcast, along with all of our other news episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate, or you could also support us on Ko-Fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. We will head into the news. All right, before we get started here, you guys have helped us reach over 20,000 downloads, and we are just shy of 1,400 followers on Spotify. So thank you guys very much for all your support. Of course, we're looking at the South Caucasus now. The blockade of the ethnic Armenian Republic of Artsakh is, of course, ongoing still. It's been going on for about nine months. It shows no sign of ending, as you guys already know. Um, We do have an interesting update on that situation. I know last week we reported on the prospect of a another conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia and how there may be one coming soon. Azerbaijan have, have of course, been moving troops and equipment to the border with Armenia. And uh, that is, you know, probably not for the purposes of simple military exercises like they are claiming. They also rounded up about 10,000 reservists as well. So they're definitely making some moves in the region. Now we're looking at this guy. His name is Elchin Amirbayov, and he is the representative of the president of Azerbaijan for special assignments. He recently did an interview with German state media DW, and he was responding to concerns that Azerbaijan taking over the entirety of Nagorno-Karabakh could lead to a genocide of ethnic Armenians. Of course, those are the ones that live in Artsakh. And Mr. Amir Bayev had an interesting thing to say regarding those concerns. He said, quote, a genocide might happen, but it will be their own fault, referring to the Armenians. So just figured I would throw that update in there. That kind of shows you the frame of mind of the Azerbaijani government. Moving on to Georgia, the country has introduced visa-free travel for China. Georgian Prime Minister Arikali Garbashvili said at a government meeting, quote, one of our main interests is strengthening trade and economic relations with China, attracting more investment from China and increasing the number of tourists to Georgia. We have decided from today to introduce a visa-free regime for Chinese citizens, end quote. Moving on to Russia, Army General Sergei Surovikin, the former commander of the Russian Aerospace Forces, whom we have talked about before many times, has recently returned to work after disappearing for weeks in the aftermath of the Wagner Group mutiny. He was seen in public with his wife, and now he has been spotted in Algeria, as reported by Russian newspaper Kamarsat and Wagner-linked telegram channel Gray Zone. Servikin is in Algiers as part of a Russian Defense Ministry delegation to the country. The scope of his role in this delegation isn't clear at this time, but an unnamed source told Kamarsat that, quote, Russia's military political leadership attaches great importance to the implementation of foreign policy in the eastern direction, 
end quote, which shows that high levels of the government still trust him in some capacity. Moving on to the war, Ukrainian forces struck the 13th ship repair plant of the Sevastopol shipyard in Crimea using UK-donated Storm Shadow missiles. That was on the morning of the 13th. Sevastopol is the home of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. Russian sources claim that 13 missiles were launched at the plant, with seven of them being shot down. Personally, I'm a little skeptical, but that's my own opinion. At least 24 people were injured, and two Russian ships were damaged beyond economic repair, and for all intents and purposes, were basically destroyed because it would it would cost too much money to repair them, right? So you might as well scrap them. That is Kilo-class submarine Rostov-Nadanu, uh, hall number b 237 was damaged beyond economical repair while in dry dock. This is the first Russian submarine to be lost to hostile action since the Second World War. And then we have the Rapucha-class landing ship Minsk that was also damaged beyond economical repair as well. And that is among multiple Rapucha-class ships that have been damaged throughout this war. So that was a pretty, pretty insane strike. And we'll see what effect that has on the Black Sea Fleet moving forward. And also another update on the war, Ukraine's 3rd Assault Brigade has recaptured the village of Andrivka, southwest of Bakhmut in Donetsk Oblast. The seizure of the village was prematurely announced by Ukraine's Deputy Defense Minister a couple of days prior, but it has since been confirmed, this was confirmed on the 15th, that the brigade was able to repel Russia's 72nd Motorized Rifle Brigade and has indeed recaptured the village. Andrivka is also south of Klitschivka, which is another village in Bakhmut Rayon, that is, I think, like their equivalent to a county, kind of, that has experienced heavy fighting in recent months. The 3rd Assault Brigade has also been engaged in that village, along with the Tsunami Regiment of Ukraine's National Police since the end of July. And at this time, Russian forces in that village have been pushed back to the northeastern outskirts. Moving on to Finland, the U.S. military will be building a base in the new NATO nation in the province of Lapi. This will apparently be an airfield, which will house F-35 multi-role fighter jets. The U.S. military is also looking to sign similar agreements with Denmark and Sweden in the near future. An agreement for an American military base has already been made with Norway, so the U.S. is making some pretty decent military moves in the region. And then lastly, for Europe, the Financial Times is reporting that next year, NATO will hold its largest military exercise since the end of the Cold War. That exercise will simulate maneuvers against a potential Russian-led force, and it will have over 41,000 troops taking part in it. And we will keep you guys up to date as more info comes out on that. Moving on to the Indo-Pacific region, looking at North Korea. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is currently in Russia. This is Kim's first foreign visit in years since before COVID started, and actually only his seventh time that he has left the country since becoming its leader in 2011. That was, of course, after his father's death. He traveled to the Russian city of Vladivostok, uh, that is in Primorsky Krai in Russia's far east, by train, the same armored train that has been used by his father and his grandfather, actually. Kim met with Russian President Vladimir Putin at the Vostochny Cosmodome, that is Russia's domestic spaceport in Mor Oblast in the Far East as well. It is widely believed that North Korea intends to sell artillery and anti-tank ammunition to Russia for use in its war. The Cosmodome was chosen as a place for the summit because Kim apparently wants North Korea to establish a presence in space, which he did make clear to 
President Putin. Putin was asked if Russia would help North Korea buy satellites, I'm sorry, build satellites, and he responded by saying, quote, well, that's why we came here, end quote. During his meeting with Putin, Kim told reporters that, quote, we have always supported and continue to support all decisions of President Putin and the Russian government. I hope we will always be together in the fight against imperialism, end quote. He also referred to the invasion as a, quote, sacred fight against, quote, hegemonic forces. The U.S. has responded to the summit by saying that North Korea will, quote, pay a price if it decides to supply Russia with munitions. Personally, I doubt that. Heavy sanctions are already in place on North Korea. You really can't go anywhere with that. And really short of military action against North Korea, there's really nothing more the U.S. could do to hurt the country. Even though the summit was held on the 12th, Kim still is in Russia. On Friday, the 15th, Kim visited the Gagarin Military Aviation Factory in Komsomolsk on Amur. That is a city on the bank of the Amur River. The plant builds Su-35 and Su-57 fighter jets. Those are Russia's most advanced fighter jets. Yang Uk, who is an analyst with South Korean-based Asian Institute, says that Kim may be looking to purchase Su-35s. North Korea has received more than 50 MiG-29s from the Soviet Union, but Yang says that more than half of that fleet has been cannibalized for spare parts. North Korea also has older MiG-23s from the Soviet Union as well, and MiG-29s that it got from Kazakhstan in the 1990s. The U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency believes that the country also has relatively modern Su-25s, but most of the fleet is made up of Korean War MiG-15s and IL-28 bombers. Before Kim ends his trip in Russia, he will go back to Vladivostok to observe drills of Russia's Pacific Fleet. He invited Putin to visit Pyongyang, the North Korean capital, which Putin, quote, gratefully accepted. And if that happens, that would be Putin's first trip to North Korea since 2000. We will take a quick break and we'll be back with Africa. Okay, we're back with Africa looking at Cyclone Daniel. Cyclone Daniel has been wreaking havoc in the Mediterranean. It has so far been the deadliest cyclone to hit the Mediterranean and the deadliest weather event of 2023. Daniel formed on September 4th and it hit Greece on the 5th. This storm caused amounts of flooding in some places, record amounts of flooding. The village of Zagora received 3.6 feet of rain and Portaria received 2.9 feet of rain on the 5th. At least 15 people were killed in Greece. Daniel also hit Turkey and Bulgaria, where it killed seven and four people, respectively. But the reason that I have this story in Africa is because Daniel moved on to Libya next. The Mediterranean coast of eastern Libya was absolutely devastated. The city of Derna suffered massive floods. Its two dams were destroyed by the overflow of water. Entire neighborhoods were swept away. Bridges collapsed. And and hospitals that survived the flood were inoperable due to their morgues being overfilled. To give you guys an idea of how bad this was, at least 11,300 people were killed in the city of Derna alone. And other areas of eastern Libya experienced heavy floods as well. As of Friday afternoon, at least 10,000 people remain missing just in the city of Derna. The death toll outside of Derna, again, isn't clear, but this is massive 
over 11,000 people killed at least, and that death toll will rise. It will. And of course, we'll keep you guys up to date on on how exactly that uh, progresses. Looking at Morocco, we talked about last week's earthquake. That was a 6.8 magnitude earthquake that was felt across the entire country. It was also felt as far as Spain and Portugal. The death toll from that earthquake has reached 2,901. That is one of the deadliest earthquakes in Morocco's history. And I think it was actually the strongest earthquake in the country's recorded history as well. At least 5,530 people were injured in that earthquake, additionally. Now, we have a coup update in Niger. Military intervention by the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, appears more and more unlikely as the weeks go by, but tensions between the junta government and France are actually increasing. On the 15th, French President Emmanuel Macron announced that his ambassador to Niger and the diplomatic staff have been taken hostage by the military junta. As you might already know, the ambassador was declared persona non grata last month, which means he was ordered to leave and was deprived of his credentials by the junta on August 31st. The ambassador refused to leave, saying that France does not recognize the authority of the coup leaders and recognizes the authority of Mohammed Bazoum, the president, instead. In response, the embassy has been blockaded with supplies not being let in by the Nigerian military. Because of this, the embassy staff and the ambassador have been living off of military rations for some time. Now that they have apparently been taken hostage, it isn't clear how France is going to respond. Moving on to Sudan, fighting between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces continues. The, the war has so far forced 5.2 million people from their homes. 1.1 million of those have fled to other countries. Additionally, between 4,000 and 10,000 people have been killed. And unfortunately, all we have is tragic updates on the 10th. A armed forces airstrike killed at least 51 people in Khartoum's Goro market. On the 12th, artillery shelling between the two sides in the cities of Omdurman and Khartoum killed at least 120 people. And on the 13th, 45 people were killed by armed forces airstrikes in the city of Niala. And additionally, on the 13th, RSF troops were repelled from the town of Um Rawaba in North Kordofan, which they captured a month prior, and that's really all we have for Sudan. And moving on to the Americas, Bulletin from the Borderlands released on the 15th. We dive deeper into Cubans that are being recruited to join the Russian military and deployed to Ukraine. And we also took a look at a major drought that is affecting the Panama Canal and global trade as a result. Uh, moving on, the Latin American and Caribbean conference ended on September 9th. At the conclusion of the conference, Mexico and Colombia called for Latin America to form a united effort against the region's drug problem. Mexican Foreign Minister Alicia Barcina said that, quote, Mexico wanted to support Colombia in this meeting because now, more than ever, it is necessary to advance in this paradigm shift and address the drug problem with a more comprehensive approach, end quote. It isn't clear if any other countries will join their efforts to combat the region's drug problem. Moving on to Mexico, a key leader of drug trafficking operations for Los Chapitos wing of the Sinaloa cartel has been assassinated in the city of Culiacan. His name was Luis Javier Benitez Espinoza, aka El Catorce, and the DEA actually had a reward of $1 million for information leading to his arrest. It isn't clear who killed him yet. This is actually the first case of a 
Chapito's trafficking leader being assassinated. So will be interesting to see if anything comes of that. And then moving on to the U.S., got a presidential race update. These are poll averages from 538. Biden's approval is at 40. That is up one from last week. Disapproval is at 55. That is down one. Trump's favorability is at 41. That is up 1% from last week. Unfavorability is at 55. That's down one as well. Looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is at 67%. That's up one point. RFK Jr. is at 12. He remains the same from last week. And looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 55. He is up two points since last week. DeSantis is at 14. He is up by one. And Vivek Ramaswamy is at 7%. He is down one point. A whistleblower has come forward to Congress and alleged that the CIA paid some of its high-level intelligence analysts to make false analyses regarding the origins of COVID-19. The whistleblower is a high-level CIA officer that has served for multiple decades. He claims that the CIA assigned seven officers to its COVID discovery team, all of whom had significant experience and scientific expertise. Allegedly, six of the seven members eventually concluded with a low level of confidence that the virus originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology that we have spoken about before. The seventh analyst believed that it was passed on to humans from animals. The whistleblower claims that the six members were given, quote, significant amounts of money to change their original analysis. You may remember that the CIA is one of the only U.S. intelligence community agencies that has no official opinion as to where the virus came from. The House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence plan to receive all documents from the CIA concerning the COVID discovery team and the paperwork concerning pay history of the team's analysts. The committees have threatened to subpoena the CIA if the documents are not provided voluntarily. Moving on, one of the largest, if not the largest, lithium deposits in the world has been discovered under the McDermott caldera along the Nevada-Oregon border. It is believed that this deposit may hold as many as 20 to 40 metric tons of lithium, which could literally change the balance of global energy. Lithium is used in many things, such as batteries, electric cars, solar panels, and other smart technology China has been buying up lithium deposits around the world in Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America, which has sparked concerns over potential conflict caused by a race to acquire lithium and other precious metals. As I said before, this deposit could actually change the balance of power in that regard. It isn't yet clear if there will be any operations to make use of that lithium. However, we'll keep you guys up to date if anything comes to that. Moving on, Ovidio Guzman, a son of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, has been extradited to the U.S. to face drug trafficking charges in a federal court in Chicago. I believe he's also facing charges in Washington, D.C. and New York as well. He was arrested in January in Culiacan, Sinaloa, which led to reprisal attacks by the Sinaloa cartel that left 19 cartel members dead and 21 arrested. It also left 11 Mexican security forces personnel dead, 52 wounded, and one 14-year-old boy injured as well. Guzman, a major leader of the cartel, like his father and his brother, have been wanted by U.S. federal authorities since 2019. This also comes the same week that El Chapo's wife, Emma Coronel uh, Espuro, was released from a California halfway house. She pleaded guilty to money laundering and conspiracy to distribute meth, cocaine, and heroin and marijuana into the U.S., 
She was sentenced in November 2021 to 36 months in federal prison, but obviously did not serve that whole sentence. As I said, she was just released. President Joe Biden's son has been federally indicted by a special counsel and U.S. attorney for Delaware, David Weiss. Of course, Weiss is the same prosecutor that orchestrated Biden's recent plea deal that was thrown out by a federal judge due to its unconstitutional nature. Hunter Biden has been indicted on three charges relating to the illegal purchase of a Colt revolver. The charges include making false statements on a federal firearms form and possession of a firearm as a prohibited person. Biden was addicted to crack cocaine when he bought the firearm in 2018 by his own admission in his memoir, but he said on a background check form that he was not an active drug user when he purchased the weapon. It is not clear if he will be arrested after this indictment. This indictment may be in jeopardy, though the law that Biden is accused of violating was actually struck down last month by a federal judge in Louisiana who said that it violated the Second Amendment. Republicans have been critical of this indictment because it does not address allegations of Biden's tax evasion, which was addressed in his defunct plea deal. It also does not address allegations of a FARA violation by Biden. That is the Foreign Agents Registration Act that he allegedly violated when working for and lobbying on behalf of foreign companies while his father was vice president. Moving on, on the 12th, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a Republican from California, announced the opening of an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. That inquiry will look at Biden's knowledge of his son's Hunter's foreign business dealings while he was vice president and from the time between him leaving office and before taking office as president. It will also look at the allegations of his own involvement in Hunter's business dealings. House Republican leaders are accusing President Biden of political corruption. The committees involved will be Judiciary Oversight and Ways and Means. The inquiry will be led by Oversight Chair James Comer of Kentucky. McCarthy opened the inquiry without first taking a vote in the House, which is the seen as the respectable thing to do. But a full House vote is not required before the opening of an inquiry. Democrats criticized McCarthy for not holding a vote beforehand, but no vote was held before either of Trump's impeachment inquiries began either. As things stand right now, it isn't clear if Republicans have enough votes to actually impeach Biden. Democrats already have come out strongly in defense of Biden, and in my personal opinion, I'd be very surprised if any House Democrats voted to impeach him. The Republicans, on the other hand, hold a very slim majority in the House, and if they lose just three members in the impeachment vote, then they lose the vote. Of course, things could change throughout the process, but personally, I would not expect them to. Just my own personal opinion. That is all I have for you guys. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You could find this on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find podcasts, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. You could also find us on Telegram, same name. Please consider supporting us again at Patreon, patreon.com slash analyze educate, or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That's all I have for you guys right now. We will see you soon.